Welcome to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, where we celebrate the craft of poetry. Each week, we feature interviews with incredible poets and artists, including Olivia Gatwood and A.E. Stallings, and original poetry read by the authors. I'm your host, James Moorhead, poet laureate of Dublin, California, and author of Canvas and Portraits of Red and Gray. Cutter Streeby holds an MFA from the University of East Anglia and an MA in Literature from King's College London. He has delivered many lectures on poetics, translation, and translation theory, including Navigating Les Majestés, Translating the Poetry of Zacharias Amatia, at universities across Thailand and Malaysia while teaching at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Publications, translations, and anthologies include the White Review, Anthology of Southeast Asian Poets, Vagabond Press, Chicago, Liter- Chicago Quarterly Review, Chestnut Review, Hayden's Ferry Review, Cincinnati Review, and World Literature Today, among others. He successfully exited his first marketing startup in 2020. So the introduction to Tension Rupture paints a fascinating portrait of how this unique intersection of art and poetry came to be. To provide context for listeners, share a few details about your book and working with artist Michael Haight. So this book, um, we've been working on it for, I don't know, five years. Me and me and Haight went to university together at UC Riverside. Um, and he was always this ultra creative person. And, you know, that kind of, that synergy, when you got somebody who's also passionate and you're passionate, um, you just do cool stuff if you can stay with it long enough. And this book has been in some iteration or other in process for probably over five years. But when the pandemic hit, that's when we actually had time, you know, to sit down and get something together. So what did you learn from the paintings created in response to your poetry and how did those responses change or evolve the poems you wrote as the concept of the book expanded? Well, originally we started it as a traditional Brastic piece. He was, except he was going to take my poems and paint responses to them. Uh, however, I sent him my whole collection, which is you know still unpublished. There's 90 poems in there, and he picked his own vein of of stuff that he liked. And he was like, "I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do it this way." And so then he sent me some po- some images back, and I was like, "Well, I like your way, but also my poems don't fit." to these so then I started changing my poems to fit his painting and it became kind of like a, a little reverb chamber or something he would have an idea I would have an idea you know and that's kind of the synergy that I was talking about so this whole thing was you know we started with an idea that we thought it would be like a graphic collection and it became this amorphous kind of back and forth thing that was super fun to do. Yeah, no, it's interesting how, um, just relating that back to writing a poem, you can write a poem thinking it's going to take one form, but then the poem really decides what form it should be. And it sounds like your book too decided what form it should be after you got into the middle of it. Absolutely. So the prose poetry form you've employed 
for many of the poems, which in many cases intertwines and blends text from other sources, is, is complex in a good way and challenging. What was your process for developing this form? Where did it come from? Ah, nobody's asked me that question. That's a, that's like, that was my favorite part of this was that form specifically. And I wrote it to be a block of text because for me, when you have all of these line breaks and, you know, traditional forms of, you know, a, a sonnet or something, it comes with all of these connotations and there's all these, you know, the last word is really important, how it ties to the first word and the line break. And for me, I wanted each word to be weighted the same so that somebody else, when they came to that block, um, they could put their own connotations on it a lot, a lot easier. No, that's, that's fascinating. And because it, it, it is very distinct and, um, it's prose poetry, yeah. but it's something a little different than that. Yeah. And it's that's where I've got the most feedback. Is it's hard to write, but I wrote it to be hard to read. You know, I like hard poems. I wrote this book for me, basically. This is how I like to read. I like poems that are like this, where you can read it and you can get some piece of information from it or some reading. But then when you come back, change your inflection points and the way that you read the poem. And it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah, no, I read the book uh, a couple of times and found that, that you, you get something different. You, you emphasize different things because you're not being locked into an approach based on how it's visualized. So fascinating. So distinct from other poems in this collection, the three detail poems and detail heliotrope in particular are more sparse, playing with empty space, including lines such as we a genre of live light, raised braille, our names, candled, votive. These poems made me think of the artist and the poet, both starting with a blank canvas or paper. How do your poems tend to emerge from that empty space? That's a great question. For these detailed poems that are in here, this was actually kind of came up while we were writing the book because Haight wanted to display his visual images as with details in a, a normal art historian book where it's like you have a full image over here on one facing page, on the opposite facing page, you have something zoomed in a little bit and close to it. And he sent me those and I was like, I want to do that with my poem. So I'm going to do that. And so the way that I did it here is for the, the poem um, that you're talking about, Heliotrope, um, that poem is like the darkest poem in here. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of about, you know, a toxic relationship with somebody that you're involved with, but also that you have with yourself, you know. And so then I wrote the detail piece with all that blank space as kind of a subtraction poem. So I took out all of the things that can happen positive on the other side. Once you get out of that toxic, you know, self-hatred and, you know, those relationships where it just devolves into 
who knows what, but on the, on the facing page, like on the opposite page, you know, once you can make it through that type of internal transformation, there's still really beautiful stuff in there. It's just how you phrase it, how you frame it. I love that. That's, that's beautiful. So in several uh, interviews, I've asked about the role research can play in crafting a poem. In Ancia, reached, uh, the, in Ancia, reach, the endnotes include references to phenomology of perception, one of multiple poems with notes that invite the reader to dig deeper, which I did in this case. What was your approach to researching and incorporating themes and ideas from other sources? Man, that's like my favorite. That's my personal favorite poem in here. Um, and where did it come from? It was so many different sources, but you know, with two master's degrees, I've been researching forever, lecturing forever. So it's like these illusions and these asides, I they were just natural for me to fit in there. And it, I was writing for my own storyline, and I wanted those illusions support that that storyline that I had um you know that feeling that comes when you write a poem I didn't sit down and be like this is the poem I was just like let's see where this illusion takes me all the way through and the phenomenology of perception I happened to be deeply into Heidegger at that time um this poem was after I listened to 30 hours of Heidegger lectures from Herbert Dreyfus on YouTube while I'm, you know, doing my normal job. I have that in, in the background and just have a little, little yellow notepad and write notes. And I went back to my notepad and anything that I wrote down that sounded cool, I was like, hmm, let's see what I can do with that in here, you know? Very cool. Very cool. Well, many of your poems are strings of phrases with single and double colons serving the purpose and I didn't see this the first time I read the book, but I saw it, the at least I interpreted it the second time, with uh, serving the purpose of line breaks and stanza breaks. That's the way I interpret it. Uh, White Elephant is just one example with lines such as, How many times have I been here? Pink myrtle shedding leaves like hands. Your hand on the test in the breast pocket of a blue scrub top. We have to talk. Just stop. I can't. This approach reminded me of Jose Saramago's blindness, where there are few visual cues to guide the reader. Uh, I found your approach in tension rupture fascinating. We've talked about that. And like with blindness, required even more focus on each word and phrase. Um, you've talked about this a little bit, but maybe go a little deeper. What led you to this form for so many of the poems in this collection? And I really, again, if you haven't read blindness, I strongly encourage you to read it i think you'll you'll uh, you'll really love it and if you have read it I'm, i hope you see the connection i've made between that book and and your form yeah i'll pick it up because i'm always looking for for recommendations of those types of hard poems well this is actually this is actually uh that's actually a novel but it is written with basically no punctuation no paragraph breaks ah. and it it is quite challenging for the first tens of pages uh but uh but once you get into it and then once you, i won't give away the the premise of the book which is pretty startling it, it is like wow that was the perfect form for that topic you'll love it anyways yeah jose saramago's blindness yeah, yeah. 
it sounds like it. That's uh, yeah, that's like something I would be okay with. Like, all right, I'm gonna write a novel, no punctuation, no capitalizations. Let's go. For me, and that like for the the colons and stuff, I still you know because I wanted to compress the form into a box where each word has equa importance. You know, where each word is equal without any line breaks, without associated forms. But I also wanted to make sure I maintain my rhythm um, in there. And for hate and for me, like we first met over music, you know, he, in college, he had a band, I played drums. So that type of musicality is why I love poetry. So Mm -hmm. in, in these poems, I had to figure out a way to not smash them all together and still give, you know, give like meter in there. And so I used colons um, the same way you would use kind of a music rest Mm -hmm. or, you know, like a Kaisura or something where it's like this, like one is weighted at, you know, quarter note rest, two is at a half and three is at, you know, full break. And I, when I started using it like that, it like freed up my brain because, you know, you start writing a poem and you get stuck in whatever phrase that you're in and it kind of runs and goes on and on. But if I just did two colons, then I, then I'm free to switch perspectives or switch metaphors or switch rhythms, you know, same thing with the italicized portions. Um, the italicized portions came, I don't know, like, four poems afterwards and I went back and revised my entire collection because it was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, the italicized portions allow me to have a different voice enter the poem, you know? And if I can break that by colon, double colon layout for rhythm, it also allows my reader to, you know, say, Oh, this is somebody else. This is somebody else's voice. This is another person speaking. This is two people conjoined. Yeah, no, I think it was very effective that you had this very dense form, which is unique, and yet you had just these these signals that was just enough. Like, it wasn't overloaded. Like, you didn't overload it with more than, like, colon, double colon, italics was pretty much it for the most dense poems. It was, uh, I thought it was a very effective way. And I think, yes, it would have been... It's a ticky balance to be challenging to the reader, but not so challenging that they just give up, right? So I think that you have achieved that balance. So the introduction to Tension Rupture details how both you and your collaborator have battled addiction. Uh, The series of numbered paintings all share the title, Alcoholic Crepuscule. Uh, You write about the interchange of paintings and poems of details as you expanded the book Beyond Exphrasis. What did you learn about yourself through the creation of this book? This is, I learned that I don't like to have a set layout. You know, I don't like, I, I proposed it to hate. Here's some poems, paint some pictures. And he was like, ah, I don't want to do that. How about we do it this way? And, you know, the interplay back and forth between me and him, that's what I really like. And so that's what I like the most about these projects. And this specific project was that there's that collaborative, adaptive kind of asana-y 
workflow where it's like, this is my task. And then that task can change the next one so that you actually, it gives the, the creation process so much more freedom. Mm-hmm. Collaboration is what I learned is so much more fun to me than trying to sit down and be like, all right, I'm going to write a poem about the January 6th riots. Like, yeah, what if I worked with some photographers and I integrated those photos and see how I can connect them? That's way cooler to me. And it's more, I just have more creative space when I'm in a collaborative type mood. You know, as long as the person that I'm working with is as passionate as me, about this and hate was a perfect example for this book because me and him in college we were both just out there you know running around every single night at some party doing just dumb kid stuff you know and now he he trans he made the move when he went to lecture in south korea and he got serious about uh buddhism and stuff and now He's a Buddhist. I lectured in Thailand for, I don't know, four years. And same thing. It's like such a, you know, it's just a, we were both in the same headspace. Like now we can look back at what we came through. And that's kind of why I have the detail things that remove the detail poems that remove the negative aspects. Cause that's like looking backwards for me and being mm-hmm. like, yeah. I'm not trying to change it. I was dumb and did a bunch of dumb things, but I can look back and say, this is what I learned. And now it can, I can make it beautiful for whatever I do next, you know, hates the same way. Yeah. I mean, you, the context at the beginning was very interesting and, and, uh, and helpful. And yet the book, I've read poetry that, that, uh, with poets that have, are trying to address their addiction that get almost overwhelmed by the experience of addiction and the poetry gets lost along the way. And I think that's really tricky. And I think it plays a valuable role for the poet, but maybe not so much for the reader. And uh, I thought that this, uh, knowing that context helped me view the, the images and the poetry with a different lens, but I also didn't feel like that experience was, overwhelming the poetry. So I thought it was very effective. So just uh, one final question before you read your your poems. Um, you know, what advice do you have for poets inspired by tension rupture to work with an artist so collaboratively? You've touched on that a little bit, but, you know, how should uh, a poet and artist, what advice would you have for them to make the most out of the experience? Oh, man, this is where the, the marketing CEO in me kicks in, you know, because I started these projects from my Instagram account, Cutter Streeby. And one of the first poems that I did in, I don't know, 2016, Hate sent me a picture of some, you know, random outside artistic shot of like moss or something. And I was like, I'm going to write for this and treated it as a prompt. And that's where this whole thing started. And then I turned my whole social media into, you know, collaborations between visual artists. And it doesn't have to be this giant, hard project that you got to set up for and plan for. Like, it can be fun. It, if it's not fun, try a different image, you know? I would say poetry itself, we, we live completely textually. And so 
we need visual representation in today's age, period, on social media to get publication contracts, whatever it is that we want as poets. But, you know, if you can figure out a way to integrate your poetry with images, either you can be the visual artist or you can work with another person, it gives the outside world like a way into your your work on the page, you know, because this is still, it's a chapbook, you know, Tension Rupture is a chapbook, it's only 19 poems, but, you know, the, the type of depth and density, because it's a collaboration, is a full collection type of, of depth, you know, so for other people that want to do this, I would say, step one, find somebody you like on Instagram or Reddit or on Twitter to your image and share it. Would that be okay? And now you can start to develop these relationships with visual artists and start those collaborative conversations. You never know where it's going to go, but also it's fun. And it gives you a, a new spin on your own work. Very cool. Well, now I'm going to pass the mic over to you to read a couple of selections from Tension Rupture. I'm going to read one called Sandcastles, and it's kind of a timely message just about abortion and how that impacts relationships and, you know, people personally. Um, and it's, it's a pretty good one, you know, if I'm going to toot my own horn. But here goes. Sandcastles. Let's see what I find here looking for nothing. Waves. Shells in the sand. A new beach and crowds of people. Our boys lost in a rhythm they don't understand. Instinct, maybe. You think the lady saw me, Dad? Push and pull. Genetic. Our letters in a bottle. What will I find looking for nothing? Below the jewel-colored clouds, I'm still here, at the joints of soul and body, holding, running my pen over the seams of me, scar tissue mostly, mountains, myself writing you again. It's just another city, less busy than ours, more violent. The jewel-colored tides are the same, though, pulled by the moon. Storms are the same here, too, twisted by the spin of the earth. My partner now. I'm trying to settle into this relationship. I've stopped talking to other people. Heat from the sun heating the clouds. You'll have to trust me. Spinning the storms. Billions of years and the diamond of my momentum the same. How can I trust you? It comes in. Goes out. The history of man where fear is the living country between us. How could you lie again? Let's see what I find here looking for nothing. Our two boys, four and six. Chasing sea foam back below the water line, running from the tide. I wanted a baby too, covered in sand. And what are they given is earth. Los vacuas de sus padres, a body, and they shall inherit our madness. But I wanted it to be with you. What do I find here? My abortion scheduled for the 24th. This beach is our palace and its pattern, our glory. Beautiful. I'll read another little short one here. Um, this one's called Florilegium, the Voynich Manuscript. And this poem here is the very first response um, 
that I did with Hate in that collaboration that I talked about earlier. He sent me a picture of Hanging Moss, and this was the first poem that kicked this whole thing off. Floor Elysium, Voynich Manuscript. I'll start with what I was given. Organic threads and purple flowers, Tyrian. Serrated bulbs and a woman with her arms open, pushed into roots bisected, filling with water. In reality, the division of the sexes is the most elegant metaphor of the human being and the psyche. A manuscript, undecipherable, and she is my joint in anatomy. Her text so smoothly written, the ductus is fluid and does not appear in cipher. And we can never know who we will be, accepting what we choose today. And we can never know who we will be. I wonder if it'll be different tomorrow or what evil may be necessary to produce the good I should, or you need do something opposites from opposites, the tower, a black creek, not really black, but the environment around it, black transference, the trees to the sky. Maybe it was gray. Maybe I was wrong. We say to the woman within us, Raka, and condemn and rage against ourselves. And it's in this moment of our disarray, in that vertigo before you wake up, when you come to understand that you won't ever wake up. And that vertigo, your feet off the bed and the sun again through the window, that vertigo is just living. And it's this moment that I realize I'm just settling into my own body, coming to fill my fingers to the end. Beautiful. So in, in Sandcastles, you, you accomplish the tricky thing, which is you've got some very personal and also some very topical elements that don't overwhelm the poetry. And I want to just get your thought process of how you get that balance of including something very personal, a subject that is incredibly topical and, you know, a trigger topic, and you managed to do it in a very poetic way. Was you Were you thinking about that consciously, or did you just sort of achieve that when you wrote it? Because I, I asked that because no, I, I was, I've, I've seen poems that really bash you over the head on a topic, and, it, it, yeah. and the poetry gets lost. And those are the poems that I don't like, where it's like, you know, first line, this is exactly what I'm going to talk about for the next 25 lines. And then the close of the poem is, do you understand what I talked about in the last 25 lines? Exactly. Yes. I don't like that. I don't like that poem. I don't like to be told what to think. I like to have autonomy to read and interpret for myself. But you need a you need a hard poem to, to let you do the thinking. And when I was writing this one, um, I was at the beach. I was literally looking at my kids while I was writing this. It's like one of those poems for me that don't happen very often. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it there on the spot, um, but then I came back and I did all of the edits to the form and the breaks and the different iterations. It it felt, you know, too too kind of personal and you know I don't I like to be as it's tied into the book. I like to look back and objectively find the points in time where something could have been different or this, I did this at this point and it related, you know, it equated to um, a different outcome. And this was one of those. And it's rough. It's really rough thinking about all the choices that you've made in your life when you're, you know, running around addicted to something 
And I've made those choices. And, you know, luckily I didn't for, for my babies that I have that are running around my house right now being loud. But looking back, you know, I, I wanted to be able to capture the sadness that I have while also still kind of giving that, you know, where it says they inherit our madness. I wasn't ready to have kids when I was 18 years old, Mm -hmm. you know, and that was, you know, that line, I try to speak to that where it's like, who knows what would have happened to me if, if, you know, my partner and I at the time hadn't agreed to go through with an abortion. So it's, it's still sad that when looking back, I'm just like, yeah, I wish I wouldn't have gotten myself into that spot, but it's just in the poem. I hope that that tension is is in that poem because it is it's a really triggering topic, and it's personally going to be different to every single person that reads it. No, I think that that's why it was effective is because you you touched the topic without again like you talked about the poems you don't like I don't like them either where they bash you over the head and tell you what you're supposed to think and then the poetry is lost and the subtlety and the the mystery is lost so just one final question about a, a poem that you didn't read but that you did you do a video out on YouTube which I'll share in the show notes and in the article that accompanies this seaside graffiti I think it's a very powerful example of how poems unlike prose have two distinct forms the written form designed to be seen as much is to be read, and the spoken form to be heard. Uh, Olivia Gatwood spoke of this difference in our interview. Uh, the spoken form of seaside graffiti is uh, striking is striking with redaction, columns, annotated, uses of white space and enjambment, um, unlike most of the other poems in the collection. It's also a beautiful poem, so personal and powerful, and uh, I encourage listeners to seek out the visual form in your book and, and the, the, aud- the audible form uh, on YouTube, and uh, you just share a little bit about how you chose the form for this poem and how you approached reciting a poem like this, which in its pure original form is probably not recitable, and you had to recite a almost a, an excerpt from it, but it's a beautiful poem and excerpt. They're both really fascinating. Um, so talk a little bit about that, the, the, you know, the written form versus the recited form of a poem. Yeah, so this one is... Uh... Where I grew up, um, you know, it's suburban neighborhood, decent community. There's, you know, we have crime, but nobody's getting shot every other week. You know, when the when the pharma, pharmacy companies changed the formula for oxycotton, and you couldn't crush it and snort it or smoke it anymore. Um, all of my friends, like in high school, we were like 15 when they switched it and everybody was already addicted to it. So it's like, this is from the opioid crisis. And these, this poem has two of my friends that are dead. One of them, my best friend, who died after I got, um, after Tupelo picked this book up, he died while I'm editing this collection and working with Hay for this. And you know, I see his mom at the store sometimes still. And it's just like, I I wrote the original poem um, as kind of just a traditional line break poem with none of the redactions and none of the enjambment. And it just, 
felt to me so lame and not enough. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just not, it did not encapsulate what I was feeling. The first kid died, Ronnie died when I wrote it. This one got picked up by the way, review. Um, you know, he died while I'm there writing my poems. And I let my friends are in jail or dead right now from, from high school because of the opioid pandemic. And I wrote the original poem as a response to his death. And then it just felt so lame. So then I just went and I chopped it up. And each of those little redactions gives me space to kind of twist the, you know, the overtly poetic kind of eulogy feel of the original poem. And, you know, it splashes a little bit of color in it and makes it actually real, you know. So, you know, and trying to read it, that was that was a battle, too, because I put those YouTube uh, excerpts together specifically for the release of this book. And I didn't know how to do it. My friend is a audio engineer and was like, just read these portions. Mm. I went with it and then on display on the screen, I can still kind of show the redaction visually while also reading it so that now I can read the original kind of eulogy that's in there, but also I can display visually to people watching the video, like this is what's actually going on in the background. This is what's actually happening behind this poem. So it was, not it, that poem I don't think would work as like audio only there it has to be visually on the on the page when you read the poem you can see what I'm doing and then in the reading on YouTube you can I made sure to keep that in the video itself so that you can see the redactions and you can see the the kind of interplay of, of reality well, I thought that was that, that's so cool to hear you break that down, and I hope that uh, this has got folks super curious to go track down Tension Rupture. It's a wonderful, challenging in a good way book. Um, it'll it's just so different from other things I've read. So I want to thank you so much, Cutter, for sharing your poetry and your story with the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's been a been a pleasure. Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast is written and produced by James Moorhead. You can follow me on Twitter at Dublin Ranch, subscribe to the Viewless Wings Poetry Podcast, and follow us on viewlesswings.com or on Instagram at viewlesswings.com.